Welcome to The Truth Simply Put, the teaching broadcast vehicle of the Basilea Commission. On today's teaching by Alexander Victor, God's Word, rightly divided in the light of Christ, who is the central theme of the entire scriptures, will come with simplicity, precision, clarity, and power to instruct, admonish, edify, and build you up into the full measure of the stature of Christ. Now, let's dive straight in. Today's part 13. Okay, we'll be discussing today the effect of the gospel and the practice of the gospel. We explored last week what we were saved from. And then to everyone's shocker, we realized who we were saved from. There's some things that rock the very foundation of what you believe until you realize that this is the truth of the scripture. It's the word, it's what it is. If you were saved from Satan, there's a problem. Because it means that Satan can steal from God. And that is a major problem already. You know, if God can be stolen from, then he cannot be trusted. It means if he says no one can snatch you from my hand, don't take him too seriously. Because there is how the climate, the conditions, the circumstances, the situations of life can play out such that before God knows what is happening, even though his intention towards you is of good and not of evil, to bring you an expected telios, end. But it turns out that he might not have all the absolute control over it because this Satan is so sly and witty and nifty and crafty that he can somehow wiggle his way into the hand of the most high who created him and somehow steal what God secured with his own blood from God. Now this is the scenario that religion has painted that has pitched Satan against God. That's the scenario. Has pitched Satan against God so it is two forces. It's God and Satan fighting. Satan is not fighting God. He never has. How can somebody be God's enemy and then sometimes God uses him to grow the church? Hand them over to Satan. Let Satan teach them how not to blaspheme the name of God. And we gather here. Satan is not. Who told you? Sons of God gather. He's there. Heavenly host gathers. He's there. <laughs> so no, Satan and God are not enemies. Don't dignify Satan with that yes, level of elevation. That's us making a God out of him. Yes. Of equal measure to the most high. That's what it is. And that's not the case. So we're not delivered from Satan. We're delivered from God's wrath, which was occasioned by his righteousness against our unrighteousness, which made us enemies of God because of his righteousness. Because of his righteousness. So his, his righteousness is provoked against unrighteousness of men as we saw in Romans 1 and verse 18. And if God's righteousness is the problem because God is in love with you but his righteousness will not let him ignore your unrighteousness and love you because your unrighteousness made you his enemy. But trapped in that is his son that he's in love with. So he has to use his righteousness to fix his righteousness problem. Because his righteousness is the problem. And so his righteousness has to be the solution. He has to deal with unrighteousness by re- replacing it with and therefore imputing his righteousness. So when he sees you, he doesn't see your unrighteousness. He sees his righteousness and therefore has no reason to be an enemy to you. So salvation is exclusively a God thing. I will say it all the days of my life. Salvation is not a partnership. 
You don't partner with God to receive salvation. The ability is of him. The power of God unto salvation. Power of God. God does it that men might fear him. Ecclesiastes yeah. <laughs> 3.14. God does it that men might fear him. It had to be God to solve the problem of God. Today with the effect of the gospel, we shall begin to look into what we are saved into. What have we been saved into? Number one, we have been saved into a glorious inheritance. Can we all say that? We have been saved into a glorious inheritance. And this inheritance is one that we share together. That is why you cannot ignore or you could ignore to your own detriment church consciousness. If you ignore church consciousness, you ignore it to your detriment. Because the inheritance that the believer has in Christ Jesus, hear me carefully, the believer does not have it alone. And that's why we're coming against all these long age old myths like heaven is a personal race. If heaven is a personal race, then some people should have entered it long before others. But no man has seen God. No one has ascended to heaven except the one that came from heaven. And it's the one that came from heaven that said it. Not the one that dreamed that they came from heaven. But the actual one that came from heaven. Said no one else has been there. So it's from his standpoint that we consider the narrative of everybody else and what they have had to say. Does that make sense? I wrote something down. We do not preach our experience at the gospel. We preach the gospel at our experience. And then measure and define our experience on the basis of the gospel. Your experience doesn't validate the gospel. God is not real because he appeared to you in your bed. (laughs) Because appearances are cheap. All kinds of things appear to people. In the day, in the night. While they are asleep, while they are awake. So God is not real. Oh, I believe Jesus. He showed up in my room. You are most likely to lead somebody into error. If it's not on the basis of the word of God, rightly divided, that you establish that Jesus is real. But you establish that Jesus is real because of the 3D hologram that showed up in your room. Then you are most likely with the best of intentions going to lead somebody into error. Because very soon you will start to teach subjectively. And then you start to look for, at best, or at worst, formulate encounters. Because it becomes subjective. It becomes subjective. We start to validate stuff based on what people are saying, based on what people are seeing, based on what people are feeling. And then before you know what's happening, we start to twist the scriptures. So you cannot have subjectivism as the basis of doctrine. You can't have your experience as the basis for doctrine. You can't have what somebody has said. I am still going through the process of questioning every single thing I've ever known. And examining it in the light of scripture. Everything. In the light of scripture. That's why I call myself a a student teacher. I'm a teacher who is a student. Let, let, Let him be true. Let every word be a lie. It's not, it's not experiences. It's not, it's not what we have known. We're saved into a glorious inheritance and it's an inheritance that nobody receives alone. 
Because if you receive it alone, you can get it to heaven alone. But nobody can get it to heaven alone because nobody has been there. Because he that came from heaven said nobody has been there. And so he's true. If he's true, because he's truth. Then everybody else, no matter how well-intentioned, is a lie. Not just a liar, a lie. With all due respect. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that you are a liar, sir. I'm just saying that if Jesus is the truth and what you said did not line up with what Jesus said and Jesus is the truth, and then, um, sir. And so let's not be sentimental. It's just based on what he who introduced himself as the truth said. Excuse me, sir. Do you believe that he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Do you believe that he said, sanctify them by thy word, thy word is truth? Do, do you believe that he said, Paul says, let God be true, let every man be a liar? Do you believe that Paul, Paul said, well, and he meant it when he said that, if we or anyone else, or even an, an angel comes to you with the gospel, other than what we have preached to you, let that person be accursed. Do, do you believe that, uh, that no one can add or, re, or take away from the scripture as he tells the revelator in Revelation? Do you believe all of that okay on the basis of all that you have said you believe how does what you have said you believe line up with what you say you believe no keep emotions and sentiments and sensuality aside if you believe what jesus said how is what you are championing consistent with what you have said you believe jesus said it's on the strength of that sir that we're saying you are lying not on the strength of who you are you might be good at your business. You might have a great relationship with your family. You might be a doting husband and an amazing father. You might be a wonderful shepherd and have a heart for your people. But on the basis of doctrine, sir, it is not true because he that is truth contradicts what you have said. That's how we teach the gospel. That's how Jesus is truth. Does that make sense? That's how as long as he's true, every man must be a liar and be happy to be. <laughs> So that you know that he is true. Amen? Amen? So the glorious inheritance that we have been saved into is a commonwealth. That's why it's called a commonwealth. Yeah, 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 yeah. Alright? We share it. And whether religion likes it or not, we are entering it together or nobody is entering. It's not individual. Individuals will give account of their works in righteousness. Not for salvation. Does that, make, does that make sense? And these things are it's important to understand context. It, it's important for, it's appointed unto man wants to die. And after that judgment, it doesn't necessarily mean that as soon as you die, what is following is judgment. No, because then everything else about scripture will be a lie. But if he says the dead in Christ will rise first, a time is coming when all the dead will rise on, unto judgment, the two different thrones of judgment. Do you understand what I'm saying? Judgment will happen once. It will not happen incrementally. You die, you judge, you die. So in heaven now, in heaven's court, every second is judgment. Scripture doesn't teach that. All of us will be raised at the same time to, to judgment of different kinds. Does that make sense? The unbeliever for his salvation or his unrighteousness which pitched him as an enemy of God in defiance of God's righteousness and the believer for works done in righteousness. Believer and the unbeliever will never stand before the same judgment seat of God. It's an insult to what God himself did in Christ. Can I stand with somebody that did not not believe? What basis do we have to stand before the same throne? No basis. That's why there are two different thrones. The great white throne judgment and the Bama state judgment. We'll talk about that when we start to deal with eschatology. But for now, let me emphasize and hammer again. That we are saved into a glorious inheritance and it is a commonwealth. It is an inheritance that we all share. Nobody's getting it. 
That takes me back to a layer now of Luke 15 that I can add to you guys in the story of the lost son when you see that what, and most people miss it in church over centuries, the father divided to them both his inheritance. If it was incrementally, the father should have just given the younger one what he asked and not bothered about the elder one. But when it was time, when the younger one asked for what was his, the father gave them what was theirs. He gave them the inheritance together. He didn't say, well, I'm not dying. Elder brother is not asking for his. He's comfortable doing what he's doing. Younger brother is the one whose body is scratching him. So take what is yours and go away and elder brother will sort out stuff later. The moment he came to the point where he was willing to give away the inheritance, he gave to them all. So they both received their inheritance together. Same time. Of course, what one does with the other is his business. But the point is the father gave them the inheritance together. He did not give inheritance to different sons at different times. They both entered the inheritance together. Same time. Inheritance is in the kingdom of God and not entered individually at separate times. He's either going to do a mass adoption or he isn't. Mass adoption. We will all be adopted on the same day. The book of life is not going to be opened willy-nilly. When I read Revelation, the book was flipped once. And it was to search for those whose names were not in the book. Not to validate those whose names were in the book. No, we're not looking for, is your name in the book? No, we're just establishing those whose names are not in the book. So it is a glorious inheritance, one. It is a shared inheritance. It's a commonwealth. Don't dream ever, ever, ever of going to heaven without me. It's not happening. And for those of you that are even going to go together, I hope you are reminded over and over that it's a bus stop. Heaven is not the goal. <laughs> we share this commonwealth, right? That's what should make us honor each other the more. Love each other the more. Be committed to each other the more. Hold up each other the more. Honor, revere even each other the more. Because we're contrary to what religion has taught us. It's a commonwealth that we share. Christ, the first fruits, first John, first Corinthians 15. And then we who are alive, who are his at his coming. First Peter 1, 3 and 4, let's start to get into it. First Peter 1, 3 and 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. Stop there. He has begotten us again. To a hope. He brought us into a beginning. Of something. I explained that to you in the power of the gospel. Salvation from sin and salvation apart from sin. It does not end at all with the forgiveness of sins. It begins at the forgiveness of sins. Because I taught you in church consciousness. That the forgiveness of sins is the introduction of a new covenant. He took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. In my blood. Shed for you. And we know that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. I told that to drive the point home that if blood is for forgiveness of sins, it should be washed and not drank. 
So if you want to apply the blood for washing your sins, when you come for communion, you should, when, after you bless the blood, you should pour the blood on yourself. Yeah. Now drink it. Which is things that haven't made sense in church over the years. Because like I told you again, why will the blood that's supposed to wash me clean kill me if I'm not clean? That's opportunity for you to prove your worth. I'm drinking you to clean me from sin. But I should examine myself to be sure I have no sin before I drink what is supposed to help me against sin. And if if I don't examine myself properly, this thing that's supposed to wash me, that I always say, wash me clean with the blood of Jesus. Can kill me for not being clean and not even knowing that I was not clean. Um, You can keep the blood. We will have the life. So we were begotten into a living hope. Into a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See verse 4. He begot us into an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Ephesians 1, 11. See that word again. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance. See why I keep saying that people that are fighting that you can lose your salvation and the ones that don't understand you have not finished receiving it. You have not finished receiving it. Because an inheritance undefiled, uncorrupted, kept reserved. It is reserved for you. It's yours. It hasn't come into your hand. But it's yours. And because it is yours, as a legally binding contract, it will be yours. So God stands before God and pays for your immortality and deposits himself, his spirit, as the deposit. This is the down payment of what you will become. You will become spirit, but as deposit, take spirit. The spirit in you is proof of what you will become. Guaranteed. How can you lose that? So we're saved into an inheritance, undefiled, incorruptible, reserved for us. Somebody say reserved for me. Reserved for me. Turn to your neighbor and say along with you. So don't treat me anyhow. We're in this together. Reserved for me together with you. See verse 18 of Ephesians 1. Verse 18, Ephesians 1. One. Paul's prayer, right? Oh man, there's so much. Ah, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Open your eyes, oh, that's what Paul is saying. I'm praying for you that your eyes will be open, that you may know what is the hope. Calm down. Hope. I'm praying for you to know the hope of his calling. Those he called. But Romans 8 says, whom he called. Right? Then First Peter explains what the calling is. Out of darkness, out of. Into. That's his calling. And then Paul is now praying in Ephesians 1 and, and saying that you will know the hope of that calling. It's not calling to ministry. 
We're not called into ministry, sir. Out. We are called into salvation, sir. Then we are giving gifts for ministry, sir. And because of the gifts we are giving for ministry, we are then put into the ministry, sir. Paul says, God, who called, put me into the ministry. Hope of his calling, Ephesians 1.18. Look at this. That you will also know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The inheritance of God in us. You will know the hope of his calling and the hope of the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in the saints. Not in you as an individual. You will not taste it alone. This inheritance is the saints. You see that? Put it back up. In the saints. The riches of the glory of inheritance in the saints. See the same language in Colossians 1.12. And thanks be to God. To the Father who has qualified us. Us. Somebody say us. us. To be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So we are called into a glorious inheritance. Are you here? We are called into a what? Glorious inheritance which we share together. It is our corporate patrimony. Yes? Yes. Mm. We share it together. Nobody is collecting their own, eating, cleaning their mouth, and then somebody else comes back home, and then you look like, you don't even look like you have eaten. Who knows, who knows those kind of, do you have those kind of siblings? Were you that kind of sibling? No. We will all enter it together. Hebrews 9 15. Hebrews 9 and 15. And for this reason, he, Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemptions of the transgressions under the first covenant. And that's another that's story for another day because in the new covenant there's no transgressions. Every sin was sponsored by the old covenant. Because where there's no law, there's no sin. If he took away law, took away sin, took away death, and he put into a new covenant that does not have law and does not have death, how is there sin? That's why championing the law accompanies sin consciousness. Sin consciousness revives the law. Transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, that those who are called, that's where I'm going. You see why I say I've not looked at some scriptures? Because if I stay now and want to do it, Hebrews 9.15, according to what I've just said, we can be here for another six months. But no, I'm looking for that those who are called may receive the one promise to of an inheritance that is three eternal. Consistent with First Peter, undefiled, incorrupted, reserved for us. That those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So we share the commonwealth. That's why we are all saved into Christ and saved into his body, the church. Again, I ring your bells, church consciousness. We are baptized into one body. 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We're saved into a glorious inheritance. For by one spirit, we were all 
baptized into one body, one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Because this inheritance, we have to share it together. (laughs) Are you here now? So we're baptized into one body. That's why I said that you cannot be saved and not be added to the church. Right? So we're set into a glorious inheritance. Now that glorious inheritance is a hope. You have not received it. You can't spoil what you have not received. How then can you corrupt what you have not received? And not just what you have not received, but what you are guaranteed to receive in the quality for which it was paid for. Do you understand? Because he that promised you this and gave it to you said, would your child ask you for an egg and you give him a scorpion? Will he ask you for fish and you give him a stone? And the Pharisees and the guys were like, no, of course not. I mean, duh. We're not terrible fathers. And then says, if in your evil state you can meet earthly expectations, how much more your heavenly father? Because he said to them, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts, can you imagine an evil person being able to generate something good? And then he that is a good father, good shepherd, good, good rabbi, good master. He who is good, not he who does good, he who is good. He's <laughs> a guarantee. So it's a hope. It's coming. So the point where, oh man, I love the gospel. The point where you are collecting it, Jonas, and you now have the absolute power to spoil it, is when you're entering the day of the Lord that cannot be spoiled. Yeah. Very smart move. <laughs> because it, corruption cannot even enter that kingdom. So if you're in that kingdom without corruption, you cannot corrupt it. So he, he keeps it until the very last thing you collect, you're collecting it. You're entering the kingdom where nothing can corrupt it. I think God is stupid. Because if he gives it to you now like he gave Adam, you will spoil it. So no, he gives you a hope. And then he says, now be looking at me. Keep coming. Look at me. Keep coming. Keep looking at me. Keep coming. You know how you are encouraging that child? That's it. You fall. It's okay. You stumble. I got you. But if I hold you now, you won't even learn and your legs won't be strong. But I got you, kiddo. So get up and keep coming. And he keeps encouraging. And every now and then he might give you a baby walker or something. And so every now and then he might add a couple of wheels to your bicycle so that you trip. And then he might take the, the, bikes, the, the extra wheels off. And then you might feel and graze your knee and he buy you shoulder caps and whatever. And he'll just keep, 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 just keep your eyes on me. Keep coming until you enter. So he just keeps, he gives you a hope. When he says he won't leave you or forsake you, that's what he's talking about. I got you. Oh, when you're going through, oh, where is God? That's when you know that he's there. Yes. Ephesians 1.14. Ephesians 1.14. <laughs> Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? Our. Until the redemption of the purchased possession. Redemption of the purchased. Are you following me? God, by his spirit, is the guarantee. Ephesians 1.14. That what God has deposited, you will get it. You are the guarantee until the redemption. The day you enter and redeem the purchased 
possess your possession is purchased. You don't have it, but you are guaranteed for it because there's a deposit for it that cannot bounce. What a hope. So that inheritance is a hope. Are you here? And that hope is not material things. So when we say we hope, hope, hope. You know how Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 12, that of, of all these things, there's these three. Faith, hope, and love. Hope there, what is it? This hope is not material things. I'm hoping for a car. That's not what this hope is given for. Are you here? This hope is a hope of Colossians 1.28. Let scripture speak for himself. Colossians 1.28. Go back to 27. To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory. You see the same words? Of the mystery among the Gentiles. Which is the glory of the mystery? Which is what? The what? The hope. Of? So the hope is hope of what? Not houses. Not cars, not children. They will come. But the hope we are given is hope of glory. Are you here? (laughs) Romans... Chapter 5, verse 2. But give me from verse 1, but I need verse 2. Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom? That's Jesus now. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in all the let scripture speak for himself. The hope is a hope of what? The glory of God. Romans 8, 23 and 24. The hope is a hope of glory. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves. So previous verses say creation is growing earnestly for the manifestation of sons. Then we ourselves, among within ourselves, we are groaning. Why? We are eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. I will teach this sometime. I delved into it a few years ago during purposing your pain. In all things, God purposing your pain. You know, I began to deal with how some people say, if God is, if God is real, why am, why am I sick? Why am I dying of cancer? Why am I? Sometimes it's just creation groaning. And then we ourselves groaning. Waiting for when this nonsense will stop. Sickness is not always Satan. Satan has no power to make you sick. Satan has no power to make a believer sick. But a believer's natural existence at some point, knowing that he cannot handle the real gift you have been given, your whole body starts to walk in involuntary spasms of pain and infirmity, groaning. I can't wait to be rid of this limitation. Like I explained to you a few weeks ago. I can't wait to be to drop this dead weight and be energized with the actual body that can contain what God has promised to give me. Does God heal? Absolutely. I taught you that here. God heals. We have seen him do it many, 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 many times. Does he have to take away infirmity from your body? No. Because this is Paul who says, uh, Trophimus, I left sick in Miletus. Paul? 
Shadow, sir. Shadow. Paul is passing. Shadow is healing the sick. People are taking anything he's, he wore or touched and healing the sick. His own assistant missionary pastor. You see, he left him. Then he writes to his own son, Timothy, our son in the common faith. He said, that your regular stomach pain. Just be taking small, small wine. <laughs> help, help you manage it. Why did you tell Timothy, touch this scroll? Because there's no distance in that spirit. Why did they all die despicable deaths? All the apostles. None of them died honorably. And this is what makes religion looks at you like the thing doesn't have any sense, doesn't carry any weight. Yet this creation is groaning. We too are groaning. Are you getting the picture? You can say, oh, I love my child so much. Ah, push. Selfie. <laughs> Groans are not fun. Even if the object is love. So that your groaning doesn't mean what you're groaning towards is bad. Calm down. Don't curse God and your future. Because of your body. So you're going through an infirmity. You're walking with a limp. As Paul. He had one too. According to Bible history, one of his legs was shorter than the other. On account of affliction. That's why he told them, I know I don't look like much when I'm with you in person. According to Bible history, Paul was about five feet. It wasn't, it wasn't an imposing figure. Just over five feet. So the religion, even if it's called Christianity, that shows you or paints a picture that God is not with you because of your suffering, that religion is a cult. It has no knowledge of God yes. and his ways. Yes. As long as you are in this body of flesh and you are saved, it will groan. There are things that you will not have encountered as an unbeliever that you walk into the moment you get saved. Because at that instant, the groaning begins. I'm, I'm, I'm for more than this. I'm for more than this. The body cannot handle the reality of what God is unpacking in me. I am for more than this. I, I need to put off this body. That's why the church was screaming, Come, Lord Jesus. Corruption is to take on incorruption. There's a healing and health I've received on the cross that this body cannot contain. Sir, your body is not a good conductor of God's salvation. Science, yeah, physics, good conductor, bad conductor. Your body is not a good conductor of your salvation in God. When the church starts teaching this, then our faith will be, will be clearer to both the saints and those that question us about what we believe. Stop the mirage. It's not the gospel. The body will start to groan. Things that you deal with in life as a son. As your body knows, you know what? I need to, I need to transform. Your body is telling you, I need to transform to enable you receive all that is prepared for you. 
Your body knows. Because you are saved into a hope. So we groan. Put it back off. Romans 8, 24. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen. Is that hope? For why does one still hope for what he sees? If you have received it in full, why are you hoping for it? If you are hoping for it, it's because you haven't received it in full. And so the previous verse says that we groan. Ourselves, we groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption. Let me see how the TPD puts this verse. 23, the TPT. We who have already experienced the first fruit of the Spirit also inwardly groan as we passionately long to experience our full status. As God's sons and daughters, including our physical bodies being transformed. Let's see the message. This sterile and barren bodies of ours are what? Yearning for full deliverance. It's a struggle because this body is not a good conductor of God. It's not. It's not not a good conductor of God. Come out, you feel used. You feel feel shattered, battered, tattered. You feel run over. Your spirit is bubbling. Your body is trying to catch up. So you must lead from your spirit and not from your body. And that's, that's why your spirit is the seat of your joy. Not your body. You can't obey your body. Not, not now. Not now. God passes through you. It's like an energy surge that leaves you soft. Uh-uh, but I, I just received power. I just received ener- energizing. Why am I heavy? Why do I feel useless? Your body knows that something that was not his mate. Just pass through it. Stop struggling. Romans 8, 23. Let's see it in the, tip, in the NLT. Or even the Amplified. And we believers also groan, even though, even though, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies, to be released from sin and sorrow. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including... So if you have a birthmark in the wrong place or so you think, rock it well. Your body is just groaning. Your body is struggling somewhere, rock it well. It's just a groan. (laughs) Your body knows the other one is coming. Because we have been promised a hope. So now all we can think of is what we are hoping for. All of these things now cease to matter. Life and all its troubles cease to matter. Our eyes are on a hope. We have seen him who sees us. No, no, no son of God who is well taught asks God, where are you? If you are God, why did this happen to me? Why am I going through what I'm going through? No, sir. Now you know why you are going through what you're going through. Let's see the amplifier before we move on. And not only this, but we too, who have the first fruits of the spirit, a joyful indication of the blessings to come. 
Even we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the sign of our adoption as sons, the redemption and transformation of our body at the resurrection. It's a hope. What's that hope? Glory, remember? <laughs> glory. Romans 5, 2, Colossians 1, 27. Remember, we just saw that earlier. That hope is glory. Immortality. Remember that? Eternal life. The kingdom. The end of the gospel. So I say again, as with Jesus. You would then see, if we have been saved into a glorious inheritance, if that inheritance is a shared commonwealth, if that shared commonwealth is why we're all saved into Christ by one spirit and baptized into him, if that inheritance that we have received together is a hope, and that hope make it not ashamed, and that hope is the hope of glory, which is to say immortality, eternal life, the kingdom, resurrection, glorified bodies, adoption as sons, then that hope has to be Christ. Only him can tick all these boxes. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 21. 1 Corinthians 15, you see Paul's argument. This, this is what Paul stood on. This is what the gospel stands on. What God did in Christ as per the power of the gospel to bring us into what he promised us and gave us as a hope that he can accomplish only by himself. Regardless of us, in spite of us. Each time Paul, this is why Paul was in, hear me carefully. This is why Paul was imprisoned. This is why Paul was beaten. Paul was not beaten for preaching Jesus. Let me help you. Paul was not even beaten for preaching grace. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23. We'll get there. When Paul said, in Romans 1, 16, I am not ashamed that peace could no my. Because when I told you that Paul had staked his entire integrity and, and standing and repute on this gospel, I will show you today what he staked on as the power of God by his righteousness. The effect of it, what it will bring about was what Paul saw, understood and said, nothing can shake me from here. And says, no, no one can separate us. You, you, today you will understand the ferocious, argumentative nature of Paul for what he believed. He was not willing to hear you say anything. Whether you be elders in Jerusalem, you will understand Paul's countenance as per the gospel today. And then you can probably look at Pav and see if you can find any such consistency in his life. In his approach to ministry. In his approach to the gospel. In his approach to teaching. See if you can find any correlate. See if there's, you can probably find any level of imitate from, from Paul in Pav. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23. You see where Paul is speaking very, very aggressively. And says, but now Christ is risen from the dead. And has become the first fruits of those who are falling asleep or those who have died in human language. Next verse. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection, capital man, from the dead. For as in Adam all die. Even so 
now in Christ shall all be made alive. The Jews are like, no, 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 no. The righteousness we understand that we have manufactured for ourselves. According to Romans 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. The righteousness we have formulated for ourselves is, is whatever you do, whatever effort you put in, whatever you give, that's what shall come back to you and also shall guarantee your whatever in the afterlife. With the same God, by the way. Because the conflict between Paul and the religious authorities of his day were not about two different gods. Just let me just point it out to you. It was the same Yahweh. Why will Jesus look at them and then tell them directly and says, I am the way? John 14, 6, why? Because these guys were convinced that there were ways to God. The same God. Same God. Same God. Give your offering, give your tithes, do the, do the penance, do what is required, and God will be pleased with you. So each man could carve his own way to, to God, to Yahweh. Same God. Jesus looks at them in one, one sentence. He takes on their entire doctrine of access to God. And he says, I am the, not a way. It's not you will do me and what you are doing. It's that you will stop what you are doing and do me. You, Joseph's son, carpenter from Nazareth you will die that was the issue the issue was not what Jesus was preaching was that what Jesus was preaching was replacing everything they preached not adding or supporting what they were preaching preach whatever it is you want to preach just preach it and add to what we are all preaching preach it as your own expression Preach it as your own revelation. Your own words, your own gospel. Just preach as what you are called, the one you are called to preach. Nobody will be pissed off at you. But when you come and preach what you preach and it appears to replace what is in existence, then they will call for your head. And that's what happened to Jesus. I am the way. So you are telling us that every other thing we have been doing is going to take us nowhere. You. 32 year old boy you're telling us you, you're telling us you are the way then you add you are the truth you are the life, we ignored it we didn't say anything, you now said no one no one no one comes to the father the father that Abraham introduced us to Abraham before Abraham was I am Your father longed, Abraham longed to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Hey. So you can understand the sentiment he whipped up. Because Jesus attacked the institution of his day. Every statement. Every time Jesus said, I am. He identified himself with and as the father. The Jews understood what I am means. So I am the brother forefathers out of Egypt. Before they knew his name as Yahweh, Adonai, whatever. The first introduction of God to the Jews when he called them was tell them I am. So when somebody stands and said I am to the Jew, they know exactly what he's implying. He looks at them and tells them I am. How can you? Because they knew what they, they knew what they heard. They knew what they heard, sir. I am. 
the door. Good shepherd. Life. Resurrection. He just kept arming. <laughs> One after the other. You know, that, that scripture, actually, in, in John 6, he, in, in, I think in Psalm 38, he says, I am the bread of life. Somewhere in 54, or 55, or 56, he says, I am that bread of life. Yes. Look for it. Yes. What your fathers were looking for when they ate manna and died. Yes. That, I am that bread. Very provocative. I'm that bread. So people then began to turn away. 64, 65 of John 6. 66. Nah, this one is deluded. So no one comes to the Father except through me. Paul then picks that up. That's why I told you it's the same gospel. Paul picks it up and starts to tell you that no, it's not, it's what, 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 it's not what you're doing. It's what Jesus did. That will matter. And it's when you die, what guarantees your afterlife is what Jesus did. Not what you are doing. Paul began to get into, that's where Paul began to get into trouble. That's where Paul had issues. Not his gospel that he was preaching. But the fact that his gospel was a replacement theology. Not a complementary theology. You understand? That he was replacing and thus making obsolete what they were believing and advocating. Including their temple that was still standing when he was doing what he was doing. 21 of 1 Corinthians 15. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Christ. First fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. And I was saying that if this hope is what it is, then it has to be Christ. First Timothy 1 and 1. You see where Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not the Lord Jesus Christ who gives us hope. He is our hope he is the lord jesus christ our hope how is he our hope because he's our first fruit he's our hope in the sense that we can look at what has happened to jesus and have the assurance that as with jesus so with us that's how christ is our hope does that make sense we looked at somebody who believed God to raise him up from the dead. Jesus was not raised up from the dead because he was Jesus. Jesus was not raised up from the dead because he was God in human form. Jesus was not raised up from the dead because he was righteous. Jesus was raised up from the dead on account of two things. One, that he believed God to do it. And two, the Holy Spirit was in him to sponsor it. This is what Hebrews means when it says, and Jesus cried to God who was able to deliver him from death and God heard him. He prayed to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his godly fear. What was his godly fear? Belief that God could raise him from the dead. 
Does that make sense? God was able to bring him up from the dead. That was it. He believed. Because he believed, he was resurrected. Does that make sense? So, if we look at what the faith of Jesus did in and for him, then we can have assurance of what the faith of Jesus will do in and for us. Is the same faith. Is the obedience of one man. Remember we just saw in 1 Corinthians 15, as in Adam all died. So also in Christ all shall be made alive. If by the Romans 5 disobedience of one man, sin, death, and all men, so also by the obedience of the one man. Disobedience of the one man, many. Obedience of the one man, many. Faith of the Son of God. His faith. Faith consciousness. The faith of God. So if the faith of God brought about the resurrection of Jesus, that self-same faith of God, not the same one. The same one. Not a different one. If we have seen what the faith of God can do in Jesus, now we know what that same faith of God can do in us. That's hope. So it's not seen, but it's not blind. Does that make sense? We're not hoping for something ridiculous. We're not hoping as though, um, can this thing bring out water? Can this wedge bring out water? That's not what we're hoping for. Somehow we believe that, no, if we're hoping that this wedge can bring out water, it's because we have seen it bring out water. And we have drank of the water that has come out of this wedge. So it's not a ridiculous hope. It's a hope in an established possibility. Does that make sense? It's not us second-guessing what will happen to us at the resurrection. It's us having the assurance that because we have seen the product of the faith of God in Jesus, the first fruits, as with Jesus, so with us. It applies to also the modus operandi by which he was resurrected. He was not resurrected on account of his good works. He believed. Made vehement cries to him who was able to save him from death in his life on the flesh. And he was hurt because of his godly fear. Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5 verse 7. So also, Christ, who is the subject matter, did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he, God, who said to him, Christ, you are my son today, today, I've begotten you, when he was glorified. Next verse. And he also says in another place, God says in another place to Jesus, you, Jesus, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So who are we talking about now? Who is the writer talking about? Jesus Christ, right? Next verse. Who? Who is the who? Jesus Christ. In the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from and was Excuse me. He offered prayers to him who was able to save him from death and was heard. If he was heard, why did he die? And was heard. He offered prayers to him who was able. May God open your eyes today. To, to him who was able to save him from death and was heard. But he died. If he died, how was he heard? Do you understand it now? How was he heard? He was not left dead. As David foresaw and Jesus confirmed, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. 
you will not abandon my soul in Sheol. That was him being saved from death. So, saved from death was not saved from dying. But being given a salvation from death. Does that make sense? Because he indeed cried to not die. God didn't hurt him. Willingness, consciousness. So he wasn't saved from death as in prevented from dying. But when he died, he received salvation from death. So he was hurt. And if he's the first fruits and was hurt, sir, we have been hurt. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. As with Jesus, so with us. He was hurt. We have been hurt. Because he's entered the holiest, interceding for us. The inter- I told you the intercession of Jesus is not for the forgiveness. It's midwifing this thing until we enter what he has entered. This is the first fruit. Waiting until we enter. So he's the first fruit. As with him, so with us. Put back up that, that scripture. I want to see it in any other, other translations, uh, TPT, whatever. Hebrews 5 7. During Christ's days on earth, he pleaded with God, praying with passion and tearful agony that God will spare him from death. And because of his perfect devotion, his prayer was answered and he was delivered. The message. Oh, I love this. While he lived on earth, anticipating death, Jesus cried out in pain and wept in sorrow as he offered up priestly prayers to God. Because he honored God, God answered him. Again, see why I don't argue blindly with people, scriptures. But he, he was heard. God answered him. God delivered him. It could not have been the cross. Because you can't interpret the scripture to mean God prevented him from dying. Because he died. Historically proven fact. So uh, God then lied now. Or the writer of Hebrews lied on behalf of God. If God delivered him but he died. Except that it's not the death we will think. Because that death Jesus died. Looked at retrospectively is sleep. Eternal sleep. Death. That sleep from which you would not wake up. Is death. If you died unto resurrection, you are asleep. If you died and you wake up into immortality with God, you are asleep. So Jesus was not saying, don't let me die. As in, don't let me die physically. You're saying, when I die physically, when I sleep, don't leave me here. That's not the deal we have. The deal we have is that you would bring me back up after three days. And I've, I've told these disciples publicly. <laughs> no come on, episcopal, so don't mind me. (laughs) 
After all, God no go shame us. I've said it publicly. In fact, Peter warned me. I said, don't talk that kind of nonsense. You were there. You heard him when he said it. He destroyed his temple. After three days, I will raise it up. Sir, it's by you I will raise up. And God heard him. And so he died. And God raised him up. And so we will die. God raised us up. So we don't die. How do I put this now? We don't die with trepidation. We don't die with uncertainty. We don't die with fear. You don't die with last prayer. Don't pray, son of God. Just sleep. Oh, you didn't have the chance to. No, 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 no. It's not what you are saying. It's what Jesus has said over you. You don't have to see it coming. You don't have to see death coming. You don't have to be prepared for it. He has prepared you for it. Such consolation. Such hope. We're not afraid. That's not giving us the spirit of fear. But if you sleep and you don't wake up, eh? That's, this is the same Paul that said, absent from the body. You cannot make peace with God. Only God can make peace with God because <laughs> it's because of God that the beef came. It's not because of you. Because if he had no righteousness, if he was not righteous, he would not even know that a beef can exist. Yeah. So I want to make peace. Make peace with your God. You cannot. Only the high priest can. It was him that, that's why he had to reconcile us. He, he had to give us peace. We didn't make peace. My peace I give to you. I, we have, we have. Echo, 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 echo. We have peace. We have. We have peace. How do we have it? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, by whom we have access. You know the sentence doesn't end there. Romans 5 and 2, it goes into verse 3. By whom we have access into this hope that we now stand. And rejoice in the hope of the glory to come. We have, we don't make peace. We collect peace. And never lose it. So he is our hope. First Timothy 1 and 1. He is our hope. Are you here? We're baptized into this hope. When we're baptized into Christ. Because Christ is our hope. What did I show you? First Timothy 1 and 1, right? But he back up, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 2. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. A chapter later in Romans 6 and verse 3, he then says, Now, do you not know that we who have been baptized into Christ, who is our hope, have been baptized into his death? So we're baptized into Christ. That means we're baptized into hope because Christ is our hope. First Timothy 1 1. Is it coming together? We have a living hope, we have a glorious hope. That hope is coming, and that hope is a function of what is possible. 
It's possible because we have seen it with Jesus. We're not expecting God to do anything to us that is new. Exactly what he did to Jesus by the same spirit, Romans 8. Yes, he that raised up Christ from the dead. If that same spirit that raised up Christ from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. It's not anything new God will be doing when it's time to resurrect you. It is familiar territory. God will just be doing what he has already done. And you say, well, Christ is only one now. We, we are plenty. That's why he, even one, was called first fruits. The power of the many was what was used to raise the one. If the one is now fruits, the one is a walkover. As for Jesus. I said to you earlier, this is the crux of Paul's message. This was what he staked everything upon and said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. And I explained to you what that salvation is, that that salvation is not from sin. It is into eternal life, immortality from this life. That salvation equals being born again. That salvation therefore equals resurrection from the dead. As the effect of the gospel. Hope. The gospel received produces hope. The gospel received produces hope because it eliminates fear. What is man's greatest fear? What will happen to me when I die? Are you, are you following me? That's man's greatest unanswered question. What will happen to me after this life when I die, when I'm gone? And the gospel received puts paid to that question. Thus, eliminating fear and introducing hope. And what is the hope? The hope is that though we die, we shall live again. What guarantees the hope? Look at Jesus now. God did it to Jesus. How much more us? Jesus himself is sat there interceding, waiting. Because you cannot be comfortable as head without your body. So, sir, you too, you'll be groaning with us, sir. Otherwise, what did you do? Are you here? So that was the crux of Paul's message. I said to you a while ago that you will understand in a a moment why that is also the crux of our message and why we are being attacked the way that he was. Because this was also Paul's major crime. Preaching what we're teaching now. That though you sleep, you will rise again. That he that raised up Christ from the dead will raise you up from the dead and you have nothing to do with it. Like I told you, that was what began to annoy the Pharisees. And Jesus had been doing that anyway. Paul inherited the annoyance of Jesus. Because they, go and show me how many times Jesus preached the gospel and they clapped for him. And they gave him an offering. It's stones that were waiting for him. Insult, Samaritan. Belzebub. Devil, drunkard, carpenter, Joseph, is, I, I, I don't know, I don't know his brothers, and his sister's not with us. Dishonor and disrepute. Same thing with Paul, for the gospel. Same thing with us, for the gospel, because we dare to believe that the faith of Jesus 
in God that raised him up. The faith of Jesus will raise us up. We're not hoping for an abstract. That's why Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not risen, you're lost. But then he goes on to assert, but we know he's risen. That's why he will argue in the same chapter 15, that people saw him all. He didn't just write, and that's why it was important for Jesus to be seen in his resurrected state. Because they were already spreading a rumor that the disciples would steal his body. And then pretend he rose and disappeared. Showed himself to them with many infallible proofs over 40 days. So that's Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. He appeared though, people saw him. Are you here? This is why Paul got arrested many times. This is why he got beaten. This is why he appeared before Felix the governor. This was how Agrippa came there, put his mouth in what did not concern him, just because he was friends with Felix. And eventually, even Felix said, ah, if not because you appealed to Caesar, I would have let you go. Because Paul argued his case nicely. Agrippa said, (laughs) Paul Paul says to Agrippa, he says, you believe the prophets or don't you believe the prophets? Don't you believe the Bible? Don't you believe God's word? You do. Don't you? I know you do. So he had Agrippa. He said, don't, you, don't you believe? Acts 26. No, you, I know you do. Agrippa was quiet. So Agrippa saying, you almost convinced me, was Agrippa being evasive? Because he was cornered. He was cornered. Because Paul said, you don't you, do, you, do, you believe? I, 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 know, I know you do. Pretty much, I put it to you. That you know what I'm talking about. You know, you know, you know what I'm talking about. This was what got Paul into trouble. What we are teaching you now. So if we're in the trouble that Paul was in, blessed are we. Acts 24, let me show you. Acts 24. And after now you'll rejoice in tribulation. And they call you names and shame you for the gospel. Like, yeah, 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 we can be shamed for the gospel. But we're not ashamed of the gospel. You'll not, you'll not hide your face. As if you're not sure of what you're saying. No, 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 no. Acts 24. Let's go from verse 14. Oh, this will make a lovely read. Trust me. This is Paul in, in, in the presence of the, the governor, right? Felix. Go from verse 10. Just let me give you verse 10. So, then Paul, after the governor had noted him to speak. You see that? Who is this governor? Back up to verse 3. If I go to verse 1. Let's go to verse 1. So, you can, you can get the, the narrative, okay? Now, after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. This gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Hmm? When he was called upon, the orator Tertullus began his accusation. Think of him as a master prosecutor. Saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace, referring to Felix, and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places. Most noble Felix, now you know the governor being talked to is Felix, okay? With all thankfulness. Keep going, nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. 
For we have found this man a plague. A creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. And a ringleader of, of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple. And we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. And commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. We have not known the things yet. Then Paul, after the governor had noted him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a Paul, inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone. Nor inciting the crowd. He's, he's telling the governor, sir, with all due respect. I know you have been a judge. But I have to speak for myself in this matter. Because I have not been around in Jerusalem for more than even 12 days. And in those 12 days I've been around. I have not been to the temple. I have not incited a crowd. Basically, I'm not doing what these people are saying I am doing. I am, in other words, I'm about to explain to you the real reason why they are upset. Yes, Follow me. These things, these things you are saying, dissension, inciting, cult of the Nazarenes, is not what it is, sir. It's all smoke screen. Now, I've never incited the crowd, either in the synagogue or in the city, 13. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me, 14. But this, I'm going to say but this. Say but this. But this I confess to you that according to the way, capital W, According to the way which they call a sect. So I worship the God of my fathers. Believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Next verse. I have, mag I have hope in God. So it's not fighting. It's not, it's not crowd. And I stand here to say it is not me. It's not my weaknesses. It's not my past. It's not how I talk. It's not how I dress. It is the way. It's the way. Thereafter. Just because it is not a way. That can run concurrent with their ways. That's so why I stand every day. And I teach the gospel boldly. Call me whatever you want to call me. Shame me for it. I'm not ashamed of it. The way. I have hope in God. Okay. Which they themselves also accept. That there will be a resurrection. They accept. That there will be a resurrection of the dead. Both of the just and the unjust. They, 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 they believe. They accept. This being so. I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense. Towards God and men. Go on. Now after many years. I came to bring alms and offering to my nation. In the midst of which some of Jews from Asia. Found me purified in the temple. Neither again. Neither with a mob. Nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you. To object. If they had anything against me. Are you following the narrative? Yes. 20. Or else, let those who are here themselves say, if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for one statement. Are you here? Yes. One statement which I cried out among them. 
Stay in 21. Give me a modern translation. TPT NLT. Unless it's the one thing I passionately spoke out when I stood among them. I am on trial today. So all they are accusing me of is not why they are accusing me. The problem, sir, is because of my hope. And my hope is that we will be resurrected. Which, what, which they also believe. But that we will be resurrected on the basis of the way. That's the problem. 26, 1 to 6. This is what brings him to Felix, to Agrippa, all the way to Caesar. 26 and 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul <laughs> stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa. Because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews. Especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. I love Paul. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first. If they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I leave the Pharisee. So, sir, religion is not the issue. King, God is not the issue. And now I stand and I'm judged for the hope. The hope. Of the promise made by God to our fathers. Keep going. Seven. To this promise our 12 tribes. Earnestly serving God night and day. Hope to attain. For these hopes sake. King Agrippa. I am accused by the Jews. Acts 26.22 Therefore. The argument continued, right? I skipped it. You can study that later. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying that no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said will come. Let's explain in verse 23. That Christ will suffer. That he will be the first. Please, not that he will rise from the dead. That's why I told you in what abiding house. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead, not Lazarus. Yes. Not the Shunammite woman's son. Yes. Not the boy that Jesus himself raised from the dead who was in the coffin outside the city. Yes, not Dorcas. Not Tabith. Jairus' daughter. Whom Jesus himself raised. Because they all died. So he did not raise them. He just briefly interrupted their sleep. We don't understand that this is the same thing Obina that happened when Jesus died. Graves opened. People showed out briefly. Briefly. You say, can we just, this is just a, a type and symbol, taste tao, that we will wake up, oh, we are going back to sleep. There's none of these people that was brought back to life because of their faith. 
display of the ability of Jesus. That's why I told you a long time ago. I think it was around, I can't, I can't remember if it was purpose in your pain or thereabouts. I said, be careful about running around trying to raise the dead. Yes. Yes, You'll be disappointed less when you try to pray for a dead person and they don't resurrect. It is what God does at his own providence to give light to the possibility of resurrection. Only God is in control of it. Only God is in control of death. He didn't give death to the power of man. Death itself, Jesus himself is waiting for death to finally be put under his footstool. So you can't be in control of death that even Jesus is waiting to be conquered. Because like you saw in 1 Corinthians 15, like you saw a few weeks ago, it is when we are resurrected that the scripture will be fulfilled. Death, where is your state? So calm down. Let's learn the word of God properly. You say, all shadows. All. Every dead person that was raised. Shadow. Who prayed? Who prayed for Jairus's? The people came from Jairus's house and said, don't even bother Jesus. The girl is dead. Martha ran and blocked Jesus and said, ah, if you had come earlier, you would not have died. Do you believe that God can raise him? Because I believe on the last day. Which is the same kind of believing the Jews and the prophets had. And I've taught you here in this house, I can't remember what series. You're talking last day, when last day is standing here. I am the day, I'm the period. I am Alpha Omega. Yes, I straddle it. I'm, you are saying on the last day. The last day showed up in your time. You can see it. That's why Jesus would say, Oh, Jerusalem, if you knew the things that make for your peace, standing here. If you knew the things that make for your peace. There are tokens, types and shadows. So don't be disappointed that somebody did not come back to life when you prayed. It's not your business. Oh, be at peace. Me, Pap, I am never under pressure to perform a miracle. If he wants to use it as a token for his glory, fine. Does he? Absolutely. As he wills, not as you make him. There are tokens. So those resurrections were just types and shadows to show you what is possible. When Jesus rose, that's when men started to rise from the dead. That means everybody who was brought back to life was just asleep and his sleep was briefly interrupted. Okay, you are sleeping. Come out from your sleep. Stay alive for another 40 more years. See, you die. Because nobody who was resurrected from that death lived forever. He died again. In fact, Lazarus could have died that very day. If they caught him. Because <laughs> we're in John 11, John 12. They were looking for Lazarus to re-kill him. For daring to come back to life after dying. Spoiling our doctrine. Remember I say it's last day you keep. For daring, Jesus will wake you up. You didn't even have mind to tell him, no, leave me. <laughs> Pharisees, they were sad, you see. And far, you see. They're looking for Lazi to kill him. Straight up. And there was no way he would have done a day, he would have died. 
the definition of resurrection from the dead was laid down by the resurrection of Jesus. Let me put it in other words. Jesus is the first time a man rose from the dead. If he says no one has ascended to heaven, only the son of man that came from there. That means nobody has been to heaven except Jesus. And if he says, Jesus is the first born from the dead. Firstborn, protos, from the dead. It is from Jesus that you have the reference points to count. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And unfortunately, you can't even count as Jesus one. My dead grandmother two. No, because nobody, all of us are number two together. Each in his own order. Hear the eating. There are not seven billion stages of each. There's two. First, Christ. Next, us. Not first Christ, then now anyone who believes as you are believing, you are entering. No, 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 no. This itching, this each, each, it's two levels to the each. <laughs> first each is Christ. Second category, us. That's it. So guess how many resurrections there shall be? Two. Because he died, we died in him with him as him. He died, we died with him in him as him. He rose. We have to have risen. Yes, in him, with him, as him. Just that this, our own manifestation is slightly time bound. So if you look at it critically, these two resurrections equals one. Let's go back to 26. We're in 22 and 23. We're in 23. Give me 23. That Christ will suffer. That he will rise from the dead. No. That he would be the first. Now it's, it's interesting that Paul asserts that this, this, this statement is what the law and the prophets taught. Go back to 22. Therefore having obtained help from God to this day I stand. Witnessing both too small and great. And what I'm saying, sir, please give, it, give me 22 in a modern translation. Let me see. But in spite of all this, I have experienced the supernatural help of God up to this very moment. So I am standing here saying the same thing that I've shared with everyone from the least to the greatest. For I teach nothing but what Moses and the prophets have said was destined to happen. Moses and the prophets said that our Messiah had to suffer and die and be the first. What I'm saying is what these same people's forefathers said that they don't understand, so they're trying to accuse me of violating. He will rise from the dead. It's not the good news. I've told you over and over. See, when people are saying, no, New Testament, oh, Christ crucified, Christ crucified. If you don't see yourself in what Christ did, the gospel is not good. You have to locate yourself in God's gospel agenda. For the good news to be good. Fit for purpose. Christ is risen. It's, it's okay. It's alright. Congratulations to him. God help you because of your godly fear. Praise I celebrate with you. 
Thank God for your praise report. It's good for you and your kindred. <laughs> We're done. Christ is the first to rise. Who is second? Me. Okay, now that's great news. So he rose as proof that I shall rise. He rose to show how I shall rise. So all I need to do is to look at the resurrected Jesus and take my cue from him. He went through doors, went through walls, so will I. Existed without blood, so will I. Nothing could harm him, nothing could hurt him. He wasn't wearing their physical clothes, but he wasn't naked, so will I. Appearing, disappearing, doing stuff, willy-nilly, no humanity holding him back, so will I. So will I. I don't know what I shall look like. Shall I, shall I be taller? Shall I be shorter? It does not yet appear, but what I know is when I see him, I shall look like him. As with Jesus. He didn't, he didn't rise from the dead. He's the first. To rise. We're coming, sir. Hope. Now we'll go back to First Corinthians. You see now Paul, Paul is saying, I am, on, I am on trial for what the law and the prophets said. Jesus will come, he will die, and he will be the first to rise. Showing us how to rise. The, the dispute here is resurrection from the dead. In other words, the dispute here is what we are saying. The effect of the gospel is, because what is the effect of the gospel? A living hope that is built on what has happened to Jesus. Jesus is not hoping to resurrect. He has resurrected. That in his reality is my hope. My hope is not in a vacuum. Does that make sense? My hope is not in a vacuum. So this is what gives Paul the assurance and the audacity he had. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15 and start hearing his argument. You know, when you hear, when you see this scripture now, 1 Corinthians 15, you can literally hear Paul now ranting. Right, you hear his voice ranting. Now that we have understood what he was being tried for. First Corinthians 15, go from 12 to 19. Now, picture this Paul talking to Felix Agrippa, the Sanhedrin, right? Arguing his understanding of the gospel. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Are you following his arguments now? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith, I have not, I remember I showed you faith to faith? This faith now is not faith for salvation. But faith for hope. In other words, our preaching is empty and what you are believing for is in vain. Because the life, hey, I don't want to go into faith to faith. I don't want to, I don't want to, I'm resisting it. But you see how Paul says in Galatians 2.20, the, the life I live in the flesh now, now, now. I live this life now by the faith of the Son of God. This life, I live this life, this one now. I live by faith, this life. I live by faith. That's this level of faith. That's why I said there's no, there's no stages to faith, like faith to faith to faith to faith to faith, or glory to glory to glory to glory to glory. The Galatians 2.20, the life I now live in the flesh, this life I'm living now, I'm living as sponsored by the faith of God that is taking me to where his faith is taking me. 
So the believer's journey of faith is a journey from this faith to that faith. All are sponsored by his one faith. Does that make sense? His one faith sustains you in your human existence as a son of God. I've said this over and over and over, even the past few weeks. As a son of God, this faith journey of a believer is counted from when he enters faith. Not from darkness to light. It's counted in light, in faith. Does that make sense? So this faith is the faith as a believer or the life you now live in the flesh now. You live by the faith of God. But the faith, the life you are living now by the faith of the Son of God is leading you to a hope that will be delivered by who? The faith of the Son of God. From faith. Therefore, if Christ did not resurrect, that faith is in vain. And if that faith is in vain, we have nothing to preach to you. Our preaching is empty. Next verse. Are, are, are you getting it? Everybody understand? Okay, next verse. And if Christ is not risen, go back to 14. Let's just take it again. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. 15. Yes. And we too, not just is your, our preaching empty, not just is our faith in vain, we too are false witnesses of God. Because that will mean that we have testified of God that, that he raised up Christ who he did not raise up. Go. <laughs> TPT 15. Moreover, if the dead are not raised, this will mean that we are false witnesses who are misrepresenting God. And that will mean that we have preached a lie stating that God raised him from the dead if in reality he didn't. There's too many implications for messing with the infallibility of the resurrection of the dead as guaranteed by Christ the first fruits. Of course, because that is his power. That's the salvation. That's the salvation that makes him powerful. As sponsored by his righteousness. That takes us from faith. Oh, man. I love breaking down God's word. Next verse. If the dead hadn't raised up, the further implication, not just is our preaching empty, not just is your faith in vain, not just are we false prophets misrepresenting God, it will mean that Christ himself was not raised. If the dead are not raised, Christ is not raised. So this cannot be talking about the dead uh, like Lazarus. Talking about resurrection into immortality. If the dead are not raised, then Christ was not raised. 17. And Christ, if Christ is not alive, you are still lost in your sins. And your faith, faith here implying salvation from sin. Pistis. It's a fantasy. It means you're not even saved, sir. You don't even have, in the first place, forgiveness of sins. Because it's by his dying now, in the first place, for your forgiveness, that he now resurrected for your righteousness and justification that even guarantees that you can even rise from the dead. 
So now you are totally messed up. You are absolutely screwed. If you don't give Christ, you are lost through and through. Through and through. Absolutely lost. 18. It will also mean, oh, Paul, that those believers in Christ who have passed away have simply perished or ceased to exist. Perish simply means to not rise glorified with God. Does not mean God judging you. That whosoever believeth shall not perish. In, what does perish mean? Die and not resurrect, transformed into a glorified body. Perish does not mean hell. Perish does not mean fire will burn you ever and ever and ever. Scripture never teaches that. Perish, I've said over and over, simply means eternal separation from God, which equals extinction. Extinction meaning this life, as you died it, finished. That's perishing. Perishing is not eternal. Perishing is not a state of being. Does that make sense? Like, there is the perished. You're not in hell, perishing, perishing, perishing. What, how does that make sense? That's not perishing. Perishing implies a cessation. Yes? Perishing implies a ceasing to exist, a stopping. Perishing cannot be continuous and perpetual. See, no matter how a house catches fire and is burning, sir, no matter what toxic elements are in this building, it will stop burning. The burning will cease. By water, by gas, by natural elements, by time, by oxidization, by whatever form, this fire will go out. Does that make sense? And then the building, the fire stopped. You cannot be perishing. Perishing brings into view a seizing, a stopping. So when Jesus says, shall not perish, hear me carefully. Who was Jesus talking? I have not taught you born again. Who was Jesus talking to? Nico. What was the subject matter, my darling? The kingdom. If you believe, you will not perish. Not you will not be lost in hellfire. You will not, when you die, you will come back to life into immortality. That's what he meant by not perish. Are you here now? Not perish. Is it clear? He who believes shall not perish. What is perishing here? When that person that believes dies, there's hope. In fact, when the person dies, is when the person has to leave. But if you don't believe, when you die, you are perished. Because there's nothing left for you. Does that make sense? That's why that great white throne judgment is, uh, I'm going there again. It's just, a, it's just a filtering of people who did not believe and therefore will cease to exist. God is not punishing them. They are just taking the responsibility of their own inaction or unbelief. God will never punish a human being for sin. 
God will never punish a human being for sin. Jesus left no sin unpunished. For God laid upon him the iniquities of us all, 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 all. Who himself bore. 1 Peter 2 and 24, who himself bore, who bore, who carried our sins on his body. Other translations say in his body on the tree. Nobody will be punished for us. Nobody will perish because of sin. They will perish for unbelief in the power of God to save. That's the gospel. They will perish for lack of faith in God's ability to make you live forever. So when they die, they don't finish. Are you following me now? Perishing is not punishing. (laughs) That's why I said the biggest question is, when I die, what will happen to me? That's the driving question. That's why I tell you, it's one message. That's what drove Nicole to Jesus that night. So I'm getting old. The questions are on my heart. I'm not sure if I should ask them. Jesus says, ah, no, no, this, that question you have not asked, you need to be born again. Yeah. Are you here? Yes, sir. You need to be born again. So perishing is not punishing. Perishing is a cessation, a ceasing to exist in the state God designed for us to exist in. So one who perishes is one who doesn't make it into that state. Not one who God is now punishing with anger forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever because the person did not get saved. That's alien to scripture. So the perishing is the one who doesn't enter the feast with the bridegroom. As in the parable of the foolish virgins. Does that make sense? They were just left out when the bridegroom went into the feast. So me, I ain't going to perish. But you see Paul's argument now in 1 Corinthians 15, 18. Where are we now, 18? Now let's come back to perish. Perished meaning what in this context? Those who have died in Christ. If Christ did not raise from the dead, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then those who died in Christ have perished. Hold on. In Christ perished. If perishing is punishment for sin, how can you be said to be perished in Christ? Because if you're in Christ, it means your sins have been forgiven. It means you have no sin. If perishing is punishing for sin, you are in Christ, how are you perishing? If Christ is no resurrection from the dead, then those who fell asleep in Christ are perished. If perishing means condemnation, how are people in Christ being condemned? If perishing means punishing, how come people in Christ have been punished? So clearly perishing here means sleeping a natural death and not waking up into immortality. They perished. And some will. Or not. Because there's no number for those who will not perish. And there's no number for those who will perish. There's a knowledge of those, but there's no number. Do you understand? God knows. Doesn't mean there's a number. 
doesn't mean there's a quota. So perishing is not punishing. Perishing is sleeping and not waking up. Or being woken up to be told you didn't wake up. Which is the great white throne judgment. On account of what? Unbelief in his power to save. Leave sin out of it. 19. If in this life only give us TPT. 19. If the only benefit of our hope in Christ is limited to this life on earth, which is what perishing means. We deserve to be pitied more than all others. New King James says, if, if in this life alone we have hope. 19, say 19. New King James. If in this life alone we have hope, we have all men most pitiable. Jump to 29. I need 29 to 36. We have hope in Jesus. Present help. Redeemer. As long as I still breathe in. There is hope in Jesus. I'll trust in Jesus. Yes, I'll trust in Jesus. That's hope. Twenty-nine to thirty-six. Twenty-nine to thirty-six. His argument continues. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? I'll teach this when I teach this because in Corinth there was a practice of baptizing dead people in the hope that it's one of the ways to guarantee their afterlife. Does that make sense? And if you understand, hold on, if you understand Greek mythology, you see that it's consistent with Greek beliefs because after all, Corinth was a Greek town. Does that make sense? So people will die and they will carry them and baptize them in the hope that they can somehow make their way into everlasting life because there's many ways. So there are practices like that in the hope that one of them would be a way to eternal life. So you understand why Jesus, first of all, comes to the temple, flogs the money changers out of the temple, purifies the temple, then announces to you, I am the way. All these ways are not going to get you to the Father. If it's you, you won't kill him. Let's <laughs> spoil our business. Let's spoil market. Are you thinking about market or the kingdom? Jesus died to save people for you to do business with, for you to make money from assignment. God said you should bring. 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 That God should be my gate man. He can't do anything for you until you give him something. And the scriptures are saying, if he did not spare his own son. And I should keep my mouth shut because I don't want to spoil somebody's business. Your business is hereby spoiled. What, why, are you, why are you trying to baptize your dead, you Corinthians? If you don't believe in resurrection from the dead. So he uses their pagan practice. This is their pagan practice. The same way he went to Ephesus. He looked around. He saw an altar. 
to the unknown. He said, yes, it's the unknown God. That's what I'm talking to you about. <laughs> Verse 30. Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Why are we, why we, why we putting ourselves in harm's way? Verse 30. Right? What's the point of all this, basically? And then he goes, I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ our Lord. I die daily. This, that's why I'm doing this. Keep going. If in the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? And then he quotes the man, let us eat and drink. Tomorrow we die. What's that meaning? Perish. What's perishing? After this life, that's the end. So max it or max this life. That's all you have. That's all you have. Max this life. Live your best life now. Live your best life now. Because after this life, you only live once. But if that's the case, then, oh, what a sad life. That was Paul's argument. After all this, what's our groaning for? What's our traveling for? What's our, our dying daily for? If after this, that's the end. And Paul was not saying, if after this, we'll go to hell and be punished for sin. Mm-mm. His concern was, there has to be more than this. Jesus died for more. That's why I told you, Jesus did not die to escape you from hell. No, 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 no. He didn't die to stop you from going to hell. That hell that he manufactured. Yes, which is exactly what he did. Yeah. He died to save you from himself unto himself. So you can live forever as he. Exemplified in Jesus. So he made you just start as a natural man and end up a glorified man. Just to show you how it is with you. you. That's all. He made sure Jesus went through no shortcuts. Born of a man in due time. Born of a woman under the law. Went through what he went through. The child Jesus grew. Wax increased in wisdom and stature in favor of God and men. And then Jesus himself grew as a man, increased in favor, went through all. He went through, was tempted in every way. Yes, or without sin, you know. And then he went through and then he died. And whereby God highly exalted him and gave him the name. Same process that will happen with you. So Jesus went through it to show you the pattern. That's why he is the pattern son. He's the first fruit. He's the first one from the dead. To show you. He's the example. If it does not happen, then everything about the gospel is pointless. And God is powerless. God is powerless. Put the verse back up. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. 33. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupt good habits. Stay here. I've explained this before in passing. But let me, ha- let me harp on it a little bit more. It has nothing to do with genetic, generic, you know, out there. That's how you, how we would hang with people, corrupt you. That's not what he's talking about. What is evil company here? Evil company is anybody that manages to convince you that immortality and life after now, according to the order of Jesus, is a lie. That's bad company. Anybody that reduces the gravity of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the effect of the gospel, the outcome of the gospel, anybody that plants any message that makes you doubt what happens to you after you die is evil company, even if, even if it's your bishop. Anybody! Because the hope that we have been saved into, don't forget I told you two hours ago, cancels fear. 
Remember that. The hope you have received cancels fear. Because fear is man's biggest problem. I will teach someday. I will teach one. That's how you understand in the Old Testament. Whenever an angel appeared to someone, angel will warn them, do not fear. Fear not. Fear not. Listen to me. It, it, it appears 365 times in your Bible. Fear not. According to them, one for each day. The leap year, you'll find another fear from somewhere, not from somewhere, and not them together. But fear not phrase appears 365 times in the Bible. It's one of the most, if not the most, emphasized doctrine in Scripture. It is one of the most repeated concepts in the Scriptures. Over and over and over and over and over. Fear not. Do not fear. Be not afraid. Fear not. Do not fear. Every time God appeared to man, he dealt with fear. So a man of God cannot come and inject fear. Yes, sir. That's not the gospel. That's evil company. Finish the message. You are afraid. You are are not sure. You can't sleep. Your hope is disturbed. Doubt is planted into you. You are not sure if you are saved. You are not sure if your sins are forgiven. Which is the elementary. Because if you are struggling to believe that your sins are forgiven, it means you are not planning to die. Because you can't guarantee what will happen to you after this life. If you can't believe in something as elementary and as basic as the fact that God is not mad that your sins are forgiven and will never be counted against you, something that basic, then don't die. Don't try to, don't try to die. Because once you die, that's the end. You perish. And by perish, I'm not saying hello. You perish. You cease. All there is to you is this life. How miserable. Don't forget that principle. Every time God appeared to man, he dealt with fear. Why was he telling you that? I am not God to you for you to fear me. Because if God delights in your fear, he will never tell you fear not when he appears to you. Say, yes, yes, I'm the one you are fearing. Yes, I'm the one. (laughs) You are trembling, that's good. That's good. You are shaking, yeah. You are pissing your pants, that's good. I am the Lord that pissed thee. If he delights in fear, he should not always go for it whenever he appears to man. Even angels that came on his behalf will minister the absence of fear. So evil company is anyone that messes with your hope. Anybody that places a doubt on your hope that God used his own spirit to guarantee. Are you mad? Really? God will use his spirit as a deposit to guarantee that this transaction will not fail. And then a man tells you, are you sure? A man tells you, are you sure? And the man says he's speaking for God. Sir, with all due respect, shut up. Because that's what scripture calls evil company. 
What does scripture call good manners? Your hope. Your hope in the gospel is what is called there good manners. You believe that God is powerful enough by his righteousness to bring you back from the dead into a glorified body and let you live eternally glorified in immortality as his son adopted with all full rights and privileges in an incorruptible, undefiled body. You believe it? Good boy. In this kingdom, you don't get the title good boy for doing good. In this kingdom, you get the title good boy for believing good. You don't get the title good boy for good doing, but for good believing. Well done, good and faith, you believed well. That's you being a well-mannered boy. You are your your father's son. You you believe that your father that raised your elder brother that year. You know that year? That 2,000 years ago, that year. That your elder brother that died on the cross, you believe that God could raise him. You also believe that the same way God raised him is the same way that regardless, no matter what last last is, how God will raise you, good boy. You are my son. You are well-mannered. So I don't let anybody corrupt it. I staked all my godness to assure it. I raised you better than that. I raised you better than that. I raised you better than to let some false voice corrupt you and shift your hope by fear, which I shifted to give you hope. Somebody shifts your hope to place fear that I shifted to place hope. Because hope that you received replaced fear. Fear that you receive replaces hope. It means you are not well raised. You are not well trained. You don't have manners. How can you forget what your father spent all this effort to teach you? Spent eternity to raise you in this manner. Literally. Spent God to teach you this. And you let somebody come and whisper nonsense into your ear. You don't have manners. The manners here is not talking about your character. You know, somebody calls you saying, you don't need to do that. But that's not what the Bible calls good manners. Do not be deceived. If you hang around these people that keep putting, casting aspersions on your hope, you will be corrupted. And if you are corrupted, you might end up like those who perish. Now that you understand what perishing means. So now you understand why Paul was as, as aggressive. Yeah. Why he wrote to the Galatian, Galatian church. He started shooting from chapter 1, from verse 5. Start shooting. I marvel. I marvel. I marvel greatly. Galatians 1, 5 into 6. That you turn away so quickly. By chapter 3, he was, verse 1. Why, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell on you? A hex on you? In other words, who has charmed you? He was telling the Galatian church. Galatians 3, 1. Put it up so they can see it. Who has charmed you? What was the charm? Succeeding to make you believe that what you are believing is not a hope. Because you are not doing anything to sustain it. Put, give, us, give us TPT, Galatians 3.1. TPT. What has happened to you Galatians to be acting so foolishly? You must have been under some evil spell. Then God will put your eyes to see the meaning of Jesus' crucifixion. 
So what was foolishness? Doubting the crucifixion. Doubting the finished work of Jesus. Foolishness. Bad manners. Let's teach the gospel properly, sir. Be not deceived. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Give us a few tracks. Let me see. That's the TPT. 33. Hallelujah. Stop fooling yourself. See the same language? Evil companions will corrupt good morals and character. What is clear? The context is clear. You can't just go to scripture, lift evil company, corrupt good manners, and leave the context and what he's saying. And start running about it up and down. What is evil communication? Anything that threatens the hope of your resurrection as guaranteed by the work of Jesus and the deposit, the seal, the engagement ring of the Holy Spirit. That is, that is, that is evil communication regardless of who is coming from. Including Pav. No, Paul did not exclude himself. He said, he said, even if we or an angel. Paul said, I, Paul, I, Paul, cannot change what I've taught you. Paul said, if the day me, Paul, gets up and tells you your salvation is not secure or eternal, don't believe me. Paul said, don't believe me. I'm the one that taught you you are saved by grace through faith, not of works. If I come back and tell you that you are not saved, by, don't believe me. I'm lying. At that point, I, Paul, your father in the Lord, I'm evil company. I'll be, I'll be evil company. Don't let it happen. Because the entirety of the gospel is hinged on the hope of resurrection. That is what showcases the power of God. Let's see, let's see 33 in the Amplified. I don't know how he's going to put it. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Fine. 34. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. What is sin in this context? The corruption of your good morals by listening to bad company. Contextually. Not the things the cross has taken care of. To him. For that is not of faith, it's sin. To him that knows what to do and does not do to him, it's sin. So contextually, sin here is allowing your manners to be corrupted. You are very foolish. You just made a statement of we're not suffering the same fate with those who are perishing. Could it be that this is the sin leading to death? Generally speaking, yes. The sin leading to death is unbelief in the power of resurrection. Hear Paul, Philippians 3, that I may know him. Not, he didn't say miracles. He didn't say he didn't, that I may know him as in the power. Kai. That I may know him, which is to say, oh, Let me know him as in how he's able to resurrect people from the dead. That was Paul's singular message. That is my singular message. Because if we have no hope, we have all men most miserable. If it's tinini tanana, you do well, you don't do well. You give, you don't give. You pray, you don't pray. Just don't bother. Eat, drink, die. Don't worry about it. Eat, drink, die. Believe that he's Lord of hosts. Believe that he saves every mercy. Eat, eat and die. Or, sir, 
have manners. Tell your neighbor, have manners. Then take all your name and tell yourself. Put your hand anywhere. Draw your ear. Say, you better have manners. Because you see out there, sometimes, sometimes, even in here, people are waiting to corrupt your good manners. Out there, even in here in church, sometimes, there's people that will whisper nonsense. Heresies. Schismas. Cast expressions on your hope. Hope that is not what you are doing that is sponsoring. Mm. 34. Effect of the gospel. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. Some among you. You don't have the knowledge of God. That's why you are letting evil company corrupt your good manners. And I speak this to your shame. That's what he said. 35. Some will say, how are the dead raised up? Who are the some? People that do not have knowledge. 34. Those who are because of their sin. Do not have knowledge of God. Contextual knowledge. Not they don't know God. They don't know God as touching this matter of resurrection. Contextually. Because you can't tell Corinthian believers that they don't know God. When every kind of gift of the spirit was in the Corinthian church. No, you can't tell them they don't know God. You can't tell people that you are writing to and telling them at, in other verse, chapters, but you yourselves know. Yes. But you know that he made him who knew no sin. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Eh? Yes, sir. But you but know you the know. grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 9 of Second Corinthians. You know the grace. Do you not know? In other words, have you forgotten? You cannot turn around and tell them they don't know. So it's contextual. Knowledge of God in this context is as handling matters of Resurrection or salvation yes, apart from sin. Yes, 35. But some will say, How are the dead raised up? How much body do they come? 36. You, you get it now? Common, it's common sense. Oh. What you say is not made alive unless he dies. And he continues to argue that. So now he brings into perspective his entire 1 Corinthians 15 argument. Understanding that there was the one thing that they hated him for. From Acts 24 through to 26. Same thing they hated Jesus for. Destroyed his temple in three days. I raised it up. Temple that they, they now replied in what? Foolishness. Lack of knowledge. What did they say? Temple that took 40 years to build. You now destroy it and build in three years. Are you crazy? I'm so just look at them and he'll be like hashtag SMH. Shake his head, nod his head, look at them, wait, you love this, get to the cross, look at them, and say forgive them. Because if he's killing us, they knew what they were doing. They were not under a spell. If you knew the things that made for your peace. Excuse me. I know. So Paul will say, we know in whom I have believed. He tells Timothy, I know. 
and is able to keep that which have entrusted to him to that day. That's the effect of the gospel. It produces hope. That hope guarantees your inheritance that we share together. The hope is in Christ Jesus. The hope is Christ Jesus. And I'll end here, Hebrews 9. That hope is what now becomes, Paul says in Hebrews, an anchor for the soul. Both sure and steadfast. Can't let somebody come and corrupt what you know is your anchor. <laughs> Hebrews 6, 19. Okay. Um, 13, for context. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely, blessing I will bless you. Multiply now, multiply. And so, after he patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. When we say in, in the medieval days, in Bible days, up, even up until the dark ages, the Viking era, you know, right into um, um, the Bronze Age, all of, all of that in medieval age, if somebody said, I give you my word, or say to you, swear to me, and you just say, I swear to you, that's it. That's all. Just the word. Does that make sense? I give you my word. Or I swear to you this day. So that's what Abraham did to Eliezer when he said, put your hand on my thigh. Swear to me that you will not take your wife from my son among my people, among these people, but you go to my people. Don't take a Canaanite wife. And Eliezer swore. That's it. No blood, no drama, no, just the word. Does that make sense? That's the analogy Paul borrows, or the writer of Hebrews borrows from when he says that an oath is the confirmation of all dispute. Once we have exchanged word and say we agree, every dispute is sorted. Does that make sense? An oath for confirmation is for them, an end of all dispute. Yeah, 17. Thus, borrowing a leaf from this. Are you following? God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, us, the immutability of his counsel, how what he has said will not fail. Since among human circumstances and parameters, when somebody gives his word, it settles every dispute. God, borrowing a leaf from that, eager to prove to us, us, heirs of the promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. Stay here. 17. Tip it in. Let me see it. So in the same way, God wanted to end all doubt. You see that in the same way? Oh, thank you, Holy Spirit. End all doubt and confirm it even more forcefully to those who will see the word inherit his promises. His purpose was unchangeable, immutability. So God added his vow to his promise. I promised I would do this, but let me swear join. Because once I give you my word, plus on top of in addition to my promise... It is sealed. Does that make sense? So now that's what leads us to verse 18. That by two immutable things. Go back to New King James. So now you see that the two immutable things are his promise and his oath. What he has promised to do and what he has done to guarantee what he has promised to do. You can't lie. So again, it's another scripture that people just quote. By two immutable, what are the immutable things? His promise and his oath. Ratifying his promise. What God has said he will do and what God has said to guarantee that he will say he will do what he said he would do. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now, by these two miserable things by which it's impossible for God to lie, God cannot give you his promise and his oath and be messing around. 
You can't give his oath and his promise and not mean it and not be serious. That by these immutable things by which God cannot lie, we might, look at this, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of thee. Lay hold of thee. Fled for refuge to lay hold of thee. Hope set before us. This hope, verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Both sure and steadfast. And I checked them both in the Greek. They both mean the same thing. Sure and steadfast. Same thing. Different words. Same meaning. Certainty that cannot be broken. Immutability. Guarantee. Both words mean the same thing. Both sure and steadfast. This hope, according to 1 Timothy 1, 1 is Christ. That's why this hope here now can enter the presence. Verse 19, give us an ATPT. We have this certain hope like a strong, unbreakable anchor holding our souls to God himself. Look at this. Our anchor of hope. Fasten to the mercy seat which sits in the heavenly realm beyond the second threshold. <laughs> this hope cannot fail because this hope, like the gospel, is a person. And not just is he a person, he is the person. It guarantees the effect of the gospel in my life now and to come. That hope is the anchor for the souls. So this is why we boast in this hope. As though it's already ours. Because it is ours. Romans 5, 2. We boast. Through whom we also have access. By faith into this grace which we stand and rejoice in the hope. We rejoice. In the hope. We have access. Into the grace which we stand. And in this hope, we rejoice. Because it's the hope of the glory of God. You ought to give him praise. Well, that's it for today's teaching. We trust it has been worth your time. For more of these messages from our stables, kindly subscribe to our teaching podcast at www.thebasileacommission.podbean.com or via the Podbean app on your mobile device. For inquiries and further information, kindly send us an email to info at thebasileacommission.org or find us on social media with the handles at the truth simply put or at while the church. You can also send us an SMS, call us, or connect with us via WhatsApp on plus 234-70-881-8864. Finally, if you would like to give to support the work that we do, kindly follow the Patreon link in our podcast or contact our office for details. Thank you.